This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Spike Cohen, the Libertarian Party's nominee for vice president. Spike will share his platform, including how to defeat coronavirus and improve race relations in America, and why he is uniquely suited to the second highest office in the nation. I'll also pay tribute to my father, who passed away from complications relating to COVID-19 earlier this month. And now, the Nexus. Last month, I spoke with Joe Jorgensen, the Libertarian Party's nominee for president. Today, I would like to introduce you to Jeremy Spike Cohen, the Libertarian Party's 2020 vice presidential nominee. Spike is promoting a vision of common sense libertarian solutions that he says will make us all more free, safe, and prosperous. Cohen started a web design company in 1999 and retired from that three years ago to promote libertarian ideas full time. He is the host of My Fellow Americans and the co-host of the Muddied Waters of Freedom and the co-owner of Muddy Waters Media, a podcast platform that reaches millions. Spike Cohen, welcome to the Nexus. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really uh, look forward to being on the Nexus. Well, did well, a question I have that comes to mind is, did you originally run for president or vice president on the libertarian ticket? Always for vice president. So for those who don't know, um, our system's a little bit different than the Republicans and Democrats. Uh, with the Republicans and Democrats, they pick their presidential choice, and then that presidential choice picks who they want to be their running mate. Uh, in the in the Libertarian Party, we have uh, our our delegates pick who they want to be the, their presidential candidate, and then the following day they pick who they want to be their vice presidential candidate. So it, it is a distinctly different run. Uh, it is not. So I never ran for for president. Uh, I always ran for vice president. Isn't this almost like the way the early major parties did it in American history, where that's why you had like. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams paired together, even though they didn't really like each other because they were sort of one was doing one and one kind of did the other. Is that kind of a, is that a similar comparison? Would you say? So, so my understanding is that it was done differently at different times. Some it had it where it was different, where it was separate president and vice president. And then other times it's been whoever got first place was president. Whoever got second place was vice president. That ended up not being very popular because it led to people who disliked each other often very much. Imagine if uh, right now uh, Donald Trump's uh, vice president was Hillary Clinton or if uh, <laughs> Barack Obama's vice president had been jo uh, John McCain or Mitt Romney. Um, so it can lead to now as a libertarian, I don't have much problem with uh, with gridlock in Washington. Uh, but I do think that uh, I do think that. Uh, the people in charge didn't like it very much. They they preferred to have someone that they actually wanted to to run with as their as their running mate. And let's get into that. Why are you running? I'm running because the Republicans and Democrats have had exclusive control of every lever of power of government in this country, federal and for the most part state and local as well, uh, for over 160 years. And we've seen what they've done with that. They have created a system that is built on benefiting well-heeled billionaire cronies uh, who have bought and paid for them to be in office at the direct expense of literally 
everyone else in this country. It is why we are seeing such massive and growing income inequality. It is why we are seeing for the first time in recent memory, generations of Americans who are actually doing worse than the generations before them, which is we always had upward economic mobility. It was the American dream. And we don't have that anymore because it's been inverted. Uh, we see how uh, the cost of things like education and healthcare are going through the roof while the, the cronies who have made their, their industry around those things are, are, are making record profits while the rest of us are struggling to be able to even pay for these things and increasingly are not able to pay for these things and are having to rely on assistance from government in order to be able to even make ends meet. We're just seeing this growing rift between those who have and those who have not. And every time the Republicans and Democrats come up and say, oh, this time we're totally going to fix it. We're going to introduce new plans. They just double down on doing the same thing, but even worse than, than what they've been doing before. We have our, our best and brightest who sign up to protect our country and our constitution, who are sent overseas to fight to the benefit of military weapons contractors and foreign dictators. And if they don't come home in a flag draped coffin, they come home with PTSD or they come home with uh, you know, with all sorts of different, um, uh, you know, like traumatic brain injury and things like that. And then they're subjected to the absolute worst healthcare. They're given a chance one more time to die for their country by being subjected to the Veterans Administration. And mm -hmm. so we, we see exponentially high levels of, of, uh, addiction and, uh, homelessness and suicide in these communities of people who signed up to fight to protect us. And we see people that are being put by the millions in prison for, uh, uh, for basically for uh, supporting their own addiction by selling the drug that they were addicted to and they get criminalized and put in jail instead of that being treated as a health problem it's treated as a criminal problem they're put in jail and used for free prison labor for the direct benefit of multi-billion dollar for-profit prison labor contracting companies the new form of chattel slavery in this country every single Thing the Republicans and the Democrats are doing are their centrally planned, arbitrarily defined and crony friendly policies that are built around harming us to the direct benefit of the well-heeled cronies who bought and paid for them to be in office. Joe Jorgensen and I are running to completely dismantle that and put the power back in your hands where it always belonged. Now, as reasonable as all that sounds, um, I did do some research into the primary process and okay. it appears when you were running in the libertarian primary you mentioned a promise of free cheesy bread and a waffle house on every corner every single corner yes were you being serious or was that some kind of performance art no it was a, it was a great way to have fun and, and, and if you know one of the people that the, the person i was running with that we were doing that was vermin supreme and for those who don't know vermin supreme is the man who's been running for president for decades now he wears <laughs> a large boot on his head it's actually a boot liner uh but but you know uh, he wears a boot on his head. He promises everyone free ponies. He's going to go back in time and kill baby Hitler. Uh, he's going to harness zombie power and all of this stuff. And what Vermin has done is he has learned that he can use satire to reach that 40 to 50% of Americans who are so completely disgusted with the way things are going in this country that they don't want to hear anything from a politician. And if you listen to the reasons why they don't want to hear anything from a politician, they'll say things like, you know, pol every politician lies. It doesn't matter what they tell you. They're just going to get elected and do whatever the hell they want, uh, whatever they were intending to do anyway. Uh, and no one holds them accountable. 
this government is built around, you know, uh, it's built uh, against us. It's it, the system is gamed against us, and it's just built to to you know help enrich wealthy people and keep them in power. This entire system is a joke, and I don't want to participate. These are pretty libertarian reasons that they have for not participating. They get it. They get what this system is. That's why they're not participating. But the problem is. We can't reach them with our ideas. If I show up and I go, hey, everyone, I'm Spike Cohen, and I'd like to talk to you about common sense, libertarian, so they've already shut me down. They don't want to hear it. I sound like every other politician, and they're done. But someone like Vermin or someone like me, you know, being silly and promising satirical promises, it's <laughs> funny to them. They gets their attention. They go, oh, that's funny. That I can tune into. And they're entertained <laughs> by it. And because we're not pandering to them or lying to them or challenging their ideas and beliefs, their cognitive defenses go down. Now they're enjoying us. They're fully engaged. And over time, they start to think, okay, these people seem like they aren't nuts. What is it that they're really about? And then we can get them with the message. They, we've mm. drawn them in with that. Uh, Vermin called it boot pilling them. You'd get them with the boot and the ponies and get them all, with all of that. And then you'd hit them with the message. Once you actually had their attention, you could hit them with the message. Um, and we are very grateful uh, to Vermin for everything he's done to bring people into libertarianism and into the libertarian party. And we're grateful for everything he's doing to help this campaign. Joe and I are running because we recognize that this system has risen to such a level of a joke. The politicians in charge, the Republicrats and their, and their craven corporate media have made the discourse in this country rise to such a level of a joke. And where the punchline is us, the American people. And it's not a funny punchline. We're just abused at our expense for the direct benefit of those in power. We're running to change all of that and to put the power back in people's hands so that it's not a joke, so that people don't feel disenfranchised and disillusioned, so that we don't have to reach them with satire because they recognize that their needs and their wants and their concerns are being adequately addressed by the people in power. Very interesting. Now that's a, and, and that is a, uh, it, it, is it working in terms of, are you seeing any movement in the polls for that reason? Or have you been able to measure whether this satirical approach that builds awareness is translating to either more membership in the Libertarian Party or mm -hmm. votes in polls? Is any of that tracking yet? Well, so to be clear, I'm running on a serious campaign platform. I'll, I'll occasionally be silly and, and joke with people or whatever, but I, I'm not running on a cheesy bread platform that had its time and place to get to the position that I needed. And now, now we're moving forward from that. Um, and it's not something I run away from or anything else. It's just, that's not what I was running for. I was always running for serious ideas and that's what we're doing now. Um, and it was, it was a, 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 a you know, it, it was what it was and, 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 and all of that. But uh, in terms of support, uh, they did a presidential recruitment poll uh, back in April. Vermin won it. He got more recruits than almost every other candidate combined. It works. It actually does work. In terms of the polling, uh, it's still very early, but we are confident that we're going to be able to get that 15% that we need uh, to be able to get on the uh, on the debate stage. Um, mm. Gary and Bill, uh, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, who were our 2016 candidates for president and vice president, they got 13% in one poll and 11% in two other polls. Um, and so they were within, you know, shouting distance of the 15%. Well, what's happened since then? Government dis Distrust of government, distrust of the Republicrats is at a record high. Uh, we see it every day in the, in the you know, people in marching in the streets against the lockdowns and against police brutality and against everything else. Uh, we saw protests against gun control, massive protests around the country. So we're seeing people across the political spectrum demonstrating record amounts of distrust and the Republicrats responded by putting up two of the worst options for president in recent memory. So they've completely overplayed their hand. And the other thing that's happened is that, uh, you know, we, the, the share of the media 
is more and more in social media. Social media has a higher and higher share and we are properly represented there as opposed to the sort of dying TV news media that does everything they can to shut us out because they are owned by a handful of corporations that have a vested interest in making sure that people like us never make it anywhere near the levers of power that, uh, that they use for their own patronage. Right. And there, this opens up a lot of opportunities and, uh, and obviously you're running in an, a highly unusual year uh, in this year of the pandemic um, in a time that a lot of folks seem to say that a governmental solution even more so than ever before is the answer to our nation's problems. However, as a libertarian, how do you respond to that? I respond that the reason that this, the, um, pandemic is as bad as it is, is precisely because of government for the Mm. first two months that the virus was here. When people would go into their doctor's offices and say, Doc, I'm not feeling too hot. I just got back from, uh, you know, Hubei province in China and uh, I'm hearing about this coronavirus thing and I'm worried that I had it. Those doctors had to say, sorry, we can't test you for it. What they didn't say is that the reason they couldn't test them for it is because the CDC had banned them from testing for COVID-19. The reason for that was twofold. First of all, they had this ridiculous Byzantine law that said that you had to go through this absurd months-long process if you wanted to test for a novel virus. The other reason was because they were making their own test kits, which (laughs) failed twice, two months they spent on it, and they never worked. Now, meanwhile, apparently these test kits are easy to make, unless you're the government, and then they fail and you spend a fortune on it. So thankfully, there were some doctors who broke the law, just straight up broke the law. They put their Hippocratic oath over these ridiculous regulations. And when they had sick patients coming in with what could potentially be the most highly virulent pathogen in recent memory, possibly ever, they made the test kits, which again, are easy to make if you aren't the government. And they tested their patients and some of them came back positive. We now knew that it was here. It was no longer a case of trying to keep it from coming here. It was already here and something needed to be done. So they went to the CDC and said, we're getting positive test results. The CDC's initial response to that was destroy those test results and tell no one. Don't even tell the patients. Send them home. This Mm. highly, highly virulent disease that doubles if left to its own device every 18 to 24 hours and it spread. They were told just don't tell anyone. Just send them home. And now we know why it's so uh, widespread here. And then we had the states, Republican and Democrat, respond to this now that it was completely out of control by telling people, stay home, uh, don't go outside, uh, don't wear a mask, don't buy a mask, don't be selfish. We need those masks for the healthcare. Oh, what's that? No, everyone wear a mask or you're going to go to jail. And so, and then they also told them, uh, you know, don't go and visit your family. Don't go to the beach. Don't go to the park. Don't go to church. Don't go to a small business where there may be four or five of you in the same building. That's unsafe. Go to Walmart go to Costco, go to uh, Target, hundreds of you at the same time in these same buildings where it's safe uh, and stay home and buy things on Amazon and buy things on uh, and, and watch Netflix. And, uh, you know, oh, we see, oh, you're having a hard time with, with your finances. Don't worry, we've got you. We're going to spend the equivalent of $17,000 per American. We're going to give you 1200 bucks of it. And the rest of it, we're going to give to uh, large businesses so that their bottom line isn't affected even slightly by this downturn. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll stick you with the bill uh, with interest over the next 40 years uh, in, the, in, the, in the, the form of all the treasury bonds that have had to be sold in order to be able to pay for this. We're going to make you pay for that over the next 40 years, you, your children, their children, and their children. Uh, and But again, stay home with that 1200 bucks, make it work for however long we tell you to. And if you go outside, we'll put you in jail. 
if you if you go if you violate what we tell you to do, if you come within six feet of someone that you love, we will put you in jail where you are almost certain to get COVID. Now let's dial back to what the message is there. We are going to impose a pandemic upon you by not allowing professionals on the ground to try to contain it when that was possible. We are going to use that as an excuse to make you a prisoner in your own home. And if at any point you do not comply with it, we will make sure you get infected. That is what you get from Republicans and Democrats. That is what you get from bad, centrally planned ideas. Government will not save you. The people who will save you are the ones that government actively works to stop every single day. We take the power out of their hands and we put it back in the hands of the professionals so that they can do their job better than they can right now. And so that these types of things can be dealt with before they become the pandemics that we're dealing with in the first place. Hmm. Interesting stuff. I mean, it's, it's, so in a way, though, are you saying that if you were vice president and on a in administration with Joe Jorgensen, would the government have much to do at all with the pandemic response or would this be a get out of the way kind of situation? Well, I think that the first thing we'd be doing is no harm. I mean, since we're talking about health, let's talk about the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Uh, we are seeing in the form of regulations, not just these regulations, but all the red tape that's put in place, like certificate of need laws, uh, patent protections against 100-year-old drugs like insulin and epinephrine that make it so that these, these pharmaceutical companies can jack up the price of these drugs that have been around longer than most of us have been alive and cost pennies to make. And they can jack them up a hundredfold, a thousandfold, charge people so much because they know that the man government mandated insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid will pay for it. Those who can't afford the coverage, they die or they have to sell things to be able to get insulin and epinephrine, things that they need every single day. The system is built around patronizing the most well-heeled among us. And it leads to the harmful and inequitable and abusive outcomes that we have come to expect from the Republicrats. Get rid of those policies. Get rid of that harm. Allow medical professionals to treat patients. Get the red tape out of the way. There was, re there have been studies that have shown that the cost of healthcare, up to 75% of the cost of healthcare is simply the cost of compliance with red tape related to Medicare, Medicaid, and government mandated insurance. Simply get rid of that red tape that's in those programs. Not getting rid of the programs, just getting rid of the red tape in those programs would reduce the cost of healthcare by 75%. Just that. That's before you get into allowing Americans to buy pharmaceuticals in other countries. Getting rid of these ridiculous patent protections for old drugs that should have been generic decades ago. Uh, getting rid of certificate of need laws where, where hospitals have to beg and scrape to get uh, to be able to you know build a new hospital or be able to build a, a medical center uh, to you know get all these petitions signed to be able to be even, uh, allowed to start breaking ground on it. Uh, all of these different things that were designed to restrict access. They were literally designed to restrict supply. Well, anyone who knows basic economics, if demand continues to go up and supply is in, in artificially suppressed, the costs are going to go through the roof. Doctors right now in this country, ever since I think 2002 or 2003, if you are a doctor in this country and you have patients that you know can't afford your services and you want to charge them a little bit less or you want to charge them you know, a, a graduated scale of pricing all the way down to charging them nothing, that's illegal. That violates several federal laws. Why? Because government said so. Does it help? No, doesn't help anything. But government said so. So that's how it is. Mm. Uh, so we would get rid of those things and allow medical professionals to do what they need to be do. If, if, if there's any role in government 
uh, at the federal level, it would be more just information sharing, sharing information, making sure that information is is spreading freely between the states and between medical professionals. I'm not 100% certain that's even needed. Uh, but what's certainly not needed is the tens of thousands of pages of regulations that do nothing other than drive down access, drive up costs, and and make it increasingly difficult uh, for uh, medical professionals to test and treat these types of of, of highly virulent uh, uh, diseases so that we don't end up with an epidemic so it can be contained. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and it's definitely um, a unique perspective that you're not hearing from the other parties. And no. one, one other thing that I would say after coronavirus, probably the biggest at least news issue of 2020 so far have been race relations. How, how would you in a Jorgensen Cohen ticket deal with that? Well, there are many actual things that are happening as a result, and they, they are being disproportionately used against marginalized communities. Before we get into those specific things, I'd like to talk about the, the racial discourse in this country, which has been highly encouraged by Republicans and Democrats in order to keep us from looking at the real, the real uh, culprit to these problems, the real culprit behind systemic racism and police brutality and uh, unaccountable militarized police and the war on drugs and so forth. Imagine if you and I are, we go, we go out to dinner. And we're having a nice dinner and someone comes in and, uh, and hits me with a baseball bat mm. and then turns around and stabs you a bunch of times in the chest. Okay. Mm. I end up in the hospital. I'm in the hospital for like two weeks. I'm in and out of consciousness. I have a really severe concussion. I'm under constant, constant monitoring. I have uh, neurological damage as a result of it. Um, and, uh, so even now, you know, months later, I have, you know, headaches, recurring headaches. Sometimes I have some balance issues and things like that. But I'm going to be okay. I'm able to get around. I, I, I'm for the most part, I'm back to pretty close to 100% with just some some lingering things that happen as a result. You died on the operating table multiple times. They had to keep bringing you back. You have organ damage. I, I, I hate to do this to you, but you have you know have, you have all of these different problems. You were in the hospital for months, mm -hmm. and now many many months later, you are still dealing with organ damage. It's diff it hurts for you to breathe. You're never going to be back to 100%. Sometimes you have difficulty walking. You are, are 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 lucky to be alive, but you are harmed in a in a really incredible way. Like it's it. This is never going. You're never going to be back to 100%. It's always going to be something that that is is following you around because of this terrible incident that happened. Yeah. We decide to get together uh, to kind of commiserate over what happened to us. And we're talking and saying how terrible it is what happened to both of us and, and how sad it is. And, and, you know, no, no one should have to go through this. And you say, yeah, you know, this is terrible. Uh, I mean, I, I obviously got it worse than you did, but you know, it, you got it pretty bad too. And I go, wait a second, you got it worse. What are you talking about? I got it bad too. I was in a hospital. I, I, I was in there for two weeks. I, I kept losing consciousness. I, I get dizziness and, and, and headaches all the time. And you go, wait a, wait a second. I almost died multiple times. I can barely breathe right. I have a hard time catching my breath. There are days I don't even leave my house because I'm in so much pain. If anything, you benefited from the fact that you only got hit with a baseball bat and I got stabbed. And I go, wait a damn second. Maybe if you'd been more <laughs> respectful to the guy, he would have only hit you with a baseball bat. That is 
the political discourse on race and treatment uh, by mm. government in this country right now. You have different groups of people who, based on their subjective experience, where they are all being harmed to varying degrees, focusing on who's being harmed the most instead of recognizing that the real problem is that we're all being harmed and dealing with and addressing the problems that are leading to that, which ultimately lead to those who are being harmed the most not being harmed as well as everyone else. So, for example, going back to our analogy, the best thing that could happen there is if I say, Art, you clearly got this worse than me, and that is terrible, and we need to solve this so that no one gets hurt as bad as you or as bad as me ever again. We need to make sure that guy never does that to anyone else again. Applying that to what's actually happening with our racial argument, we need to acknowledge that the marginalized among us are suffering disproportionately worse, and there's no reason not to. There is overwhelming data showing us that uh, 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 people of color, the poor, the homeless, religious and ethnic minorities, gender and sexual minorities, immigrants, all of these groups are being disproportionately harmed by these policies. And once we simply acknowledge that and say, okay, we're all being harmed, but these people are being harmed far worse and disproportionately so. And let's now address the problems that are leading to that so that they aren't being harmed. We aren't being harmed and we can all come together and begin to heal the rifts and the divides and everything that has happened instead of going into this constant war over who's getting it worse. Let's just acknowledge they got it worse and let's move on to solutions and benefits. And I think that that's a very reasonable way to do it. And that's what Joe and I are proposing. Now, going back to the actual problems that we're going through here, there are many of them. Uh, but specific to police brutality, the single biggest problem is qualified immunity. And for those who don't know, qualified immunity is a ridiculous legal doctrine that was created starting in the 1950s by the Supreme Court, which basically gave cover to southern states, governments, and police as they brutalized civil rights protesters. And they've, they've strengthened that over time so that they could use it against uh, 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 anti-war protesters and then later in the war on drugs and then later in the war on terror. But it's basically the same thing it always has been. Qualified immunity essentially says... That if you are an abusive police officer or a government official who has infringed upon the rights uh, of, of the people previous prior to qualified immunity, you could be sued and held, held accountable for that. Now, you can't be sued if you, the person being accused, decide that what you did was reasonable and within the scope of your duties. Imagine if you could go to court and say, Your Honor, I know that I've been accused of murder, but I think what I did was perfectly reasonable. Right. And, the judge, and the judge goes, Oh. Well, then I'll drop the charges then. That's qualified immunity. Derek Chauvin, the man who murdered George Floyd, had 17 other complaints against him, including wrongful death complaints. He may have murdered other people. And when the Minneapolis Police Department looked at Derek Chauvin, they made the same cost-benefit analysis that police departments around this country make when they look at the bad apples in their bunch. They looked at Derek Chauvin and said, oh my Lord, this cop is terrible. Look at what he's doing to people. He may have killed people. He may have murdered people. Look at all this harm he's doing. He's infringing upon people's rights. We really should get rid of him. But if we try to do that, we're going to have to fight the police unions. It's going to cost us a fortune. We're going to spend all of this time and money, and there's no guarantee that we'll be able to get rid of him. And if we keep him on the force, it's not costing us anything because we can't be sued. He can't be sued because of qualified immunity. Right. So we'll just leave him on the force. And eventually he's probably going to go too far and kill someone or whatever. And we'll be able to put him in jail. And then we can finally get him off the force. This cost benefit analysis that happens every single day in police departments around the country is what incentivizes bad policing 
punishes good policing, creates this culture of, you know, protecting backing the blue that, you know, you don't, you don't tell on your fellow officer, you don't stop your fellow officer because nothing's going to happen to them anyway. They're not going to be held accountable. So why should you have to stick your neck out? Ending qualified immunity turns that all around on its neck. It makes it so that now those same police departments and, and police officers and police unions actively look for abusive cops and seek to root them out before they can all be held liable for the damage that they cause. The very second that they, that they infringe upon someone's right, they're trying to get rid of them immediately as much as possible so that they don't have constant lawsuits against them. They mm-hmm. look for policies to put in place to try to actively root out officers coming in who may end up becoming abusive. They do everything they possibly can to hold the police accountable. This encourages good policing, disincentivizes bad policing, and heals the rift between the police and the public, including the most marginalized among us. So that when people see the police, they don't fear that they're going to be brutalized. They recognize that the police are there to protect them and their lives and their rights and their property. We also need to end the war on drugs. We need to end the uh, civil asset forfeiture. We need to end uh, uh, warrantless surveillance and wiretapping. We need to end no-knock raids. There are so many things that we need to end we need to end the military surplus program. Uh, we need to end all of these things that are leading to uh, an out of control, unaccountable and militarized police force uh, that is causing an ever widening rift between the police and the public. But the biggest single thing we need to do is allow them to be held accountable. Nothing else is going to be as important as making sure that police departments and police unions and police officers don't want to be held accountable and so don't want to be sued for something. So they actively look not to be abusive. Do you think the federal government as president and vice president as you would be um, ha- can do this, though? Can they have the power? I mean, one thing we're hearing now ad nauseum is this is all in the state and local jurisdictions hands. What kind of power could you instill or enforce in the White House on so this the, level? The- the as we know congress for the last several decades has increasingly abdicated their their power and responsibility to the executive branch every few years they create yet another agency yet another alphabet soup agency and grant them almost unlimited regulatory authority and essentially grant the 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 executive the the, the white house the the president the power to wield that as they wish we just saw that affirmed again with the uh, cfpb uh the um uh, Donald Trump wanted to remove the, uh, the the head of the CFPB. Congress said, you can't do that. The law says that the, the rules we pass say that you can only uh, get rid of them for a certain number of reasons. The Supreme Court said, every member of the executive branch serves at the pleasure of the president. They can remove them for whatever reason they want to. And so that has underscored that uh, uh, Joe Jorgensen can come in and fire a lot of people um, and just not rehire anyone. Um, she also has the power to uh, through the uh, FDA, just deschedule the drugs and the war on drugs by by descheduling them, removing their scheduling, um, and uh, ending the wars by because of the uh, because Congress never declared war uh, through the authorization of use of military force. She has the power to say, "Yeah, war's over. Bring them home." Uh, now there are some uh, troops being stationed in places that are because of treaties and other things that we would have to work with Congress to end. Uh, but there's an incredible amount of things uh, on and pretty much in every single subject that we that we talk about. That can be done directly at the at the federal at the executive level without having to include Congress or the states because Congress and the states abdicated their power and responsibility so much to the White House and centralized that power. The silver lining there uh, is that if you get the right person in the White House, they can just undo all of that. Which sounds familiar. 
which leads to my next idea here is that, <laughs> you know, one thing I've been, we've been seeing, we saw this in the previous administration. We see this in the current one. Mm-hmm. Executive orders, undoing executive orders, new orders get undone, get yep. replaced. What do you, in, in general, what do you make of President Trump? Of President Trump specifically? Yeah. I mean, his, his, his tenure in the White House, his, leadership style. I, I'm just curious um, as to your thought process on him at this moment. Donald Trump is the, uh, the way he has governed and acted is a logical conclusion of how he has acted his entire life. I mean, we're talking about a lifelong billionaire crony who has used the power of government to harm people for his direct gov- for his direct benefit. He has used eminent domain to take property from widows who didn't want to sell their property to him so they could build casinos. And when those casinos failed, he left the poor saps who, who decided to invest in him with, with all the bills and debts. And, and he used the bankruptcy courts. He leveraged the courts to be able to walk away with most of his money intact. Um, so this is someone who is directly benefited from being a crony who is well connected uh, with the, you know, the political class. And then he promised uh, that he was going to drain the swamp only to become the king of the swamp creatures. Here's someone <laughs> who said that he's going to you know, reduce government spending. He has spent more money than Barack Obama did in two terms in one term. Or uh, he has spent almost as much as Barack Obama did in two terms in one term. If he were given another term, he would blow right through Obama's record. He said he was going to get rid of the national debt in eight years. Well, in his first four years, he's run up more debt than Obama did in two terms, in one term. And keep in mind, Barack Obama had run up almost as much debt as every other president before him in two terms. Donald Trump has eclipsed that in one term. Anyone who wants a, a constitutionally limited or even remotely small government of any, of any kind uh, should understand that Donald Trump is not going to get that. Donald Trump is the uh, nationalist, authoritarian uh, crony that he has always been. He's always advocated for the police to be rough on people. He has always advocated for a presumption of guilt. Listen to him, of course, uh, a presumption of guilt against people. We saw that with the Central Park Five. He put out that that uh, that uh, full page ad, in, I think, what New York Times, calling for the Central Park Five to be executed, even as it was increasingly apparent that they didn't do anything. This is a man who has always erred on the side of of using government to victimize people. And we should not be shocked that he's doing that as president. And then along the same lines, I have a feeling I'm going to know some of what you're going to say. <laughs> what, what, what do you think about Vice President Biden? Oh, Joe Biden's great. No, Joe Biden is the, is the, <laughs> Joe Biden is the architect of every bad policy we've had for nearly the last 60 years. I mean, if you look at any policy that has happened since the late 1960s and early 1970s, he's been a part of it. Civil asset forfeiture, the military police state, the militarized military industrial complex, the endless wars, the war on terror, uh, the war on drugs, uh, the crime bill that he co-wrote that led to the largest caging of African-Americans in American history uh, and the largest caging of people in human history. He is an architect of that. This is a man who has been the architect of every bad idea to come out of government when he's not busy sniffing children. Oh. This is who we're dealing with. These are the options that the Republicrats have decided are our best picks. And then they will look at you in this cynical ploy and say, and you have to vote for them. We know that they're not good options, but this is the most important election of our life. If you don't vote for Joe Biden, you're going to get this fascist dictator. And if you don't vote for Donald Trump, 
you're going to get this far right anti-American communist over here. And if you vote third party, you're going to get one of these two that we just said that you have to vote for. So it's, it's, it's an absurd ploy. And they say, oh, you're throwing your vote away if you vote third party. I would argue that throwing your vote away is voting for the people who created this mess, who have been part and parcel of every aspect of the creation of this mess that we're facing right now, and who now say, yeah, but if you vote for me this time, I will totally fix it. I'm not fixing it now. I didn't fix it then, but I will totally fix it if you vote for me. I just need to vote one more time, and then I will totally fix it. That is throwing your vote away. Voting for someone who is not a clear departure from the status quo and the mess that has been created by both parties in their exclusive control of government for well over a century is a is a, throw, a vote thrown away. Mm. Um, it begs the question then, since you are so passionate about everything you're describing and you are so steeped and knowledgeable about the issues, I think a lot of people would be curious, though they heard my introduction about that you were a businessman. I'd mm-hmm. love to know, how did you get into politics? You don't have this traditional background. No, I don't. I don't have a record of like victimizing people for decades before I run for vice president. <laughs> uh, but so, no. So, um, just to give you a little bit of background around uh, about me in 1999, uh, right before I turned 17, I started a web design company and, uh, I grew it into a pretty successful company, um, and was able to retire from that three years ago, uh, to focus my life full time on spreading message of liberty, uh, to the American public because I saw, uh, in the time of my growing my business, uh, first of all, I used to be a neocon. I bought the whole post 9-11 lie about, you know, government that, you know, that, that, that the reason that we were attacked on 9-11 is because they hated us for our freedoms. Mm. And we needed to spread democracy by bombing the crap out of it. Like, I believe this, like I legitimately believe this. And, uh, I was thankfully disabused by that over time by some annoying people like Ron Paul and Matt Kibbe and others who, who kept saying to, to conservatives, if you want a limited government, it ain't going to come from, you know, an imperial empire being spread around the world through violence. I was like, Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. So I eventually got disabused of that. But then also, as my business became more successful, I I saw what happened uh, to businesses as they become more successful. I saw what happened when people try to strive and and build something. They're punished. And we talk about punishing success. And we often talk about, you know, taxes on millionaires. That's not punishing success. I mean, it is, but that's just one form. Punishing success is... uh, I've talked to people in housing projects. I've gone around and done door knocking tours in housing projects before COVID and all of this. And uh, all of them had their own little side hustle, their own business, their business. It was a career that they had. And they had to be careful not to let it get too big and to get too successful, not to let the word get out too much. Imagine trying to run a business where you're actively trying to make sure people don't tell, you know, don't don't put too much word of mouth out there because you don't want the police to show up and take everything you have. Mm. That's punishing success. That is criminalizing an entire demographic of people based on their income and discriminating against them and saying, if you don't have the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars that we require that you hand us for the permission to do what you're doing, we will destroy your life and we will make sure you never leave those housing projects. That's punishing success. And what seeing those things and seeing how government treats people who try to thrive and try to get ahead and, and try to actually threaten the market share of the well-heeled billionaires and multimillionaires who put those politicians in place precisely for the purpose of keeping the rest of us down. Uh, I became a libertarian and I, I've, uh, I've been one ever since. And I realized that 
applying the same leadership and communication skills that I learned from my business of how to, you know, go cold call someone and have them go from wanting to get me off the phone to a few minutes later wanting to, you know, buy the web design package that I'm selling them. Uh, it's the same thing with anything that you're trying to sell. Now I'm selling liberty. I'm telling mm. people, I'm meeting people where they are from their precepts. I'm agreeing with their concerns. I'm validating their concerns. I'm reflecting back to them that their concerns are legitimate and that the things that they want in life are totally valid. And then I demonstrate to them, I talk to them about how we've gotten here, what has caused this, and what the solution is to get out of it. And uh, we've been very successful in being able to bring people into the libertarian movement and the libertarian party by doing that. And it all starts with being kind, meeting people where they are in their spaces and from their precepts, not arguing with them. They're valid, their concerns are valid. You simply agree with their concerns and show them how the people that they've entrusted are the ones who put them in that situation in the first place and how the solutions we have are a total departure from the doubling down of the bad policies that they put in place that put them in that desperate situation to begin with. And uh, it's been very successful. It's been a, a very rewarding thing over the past few years, especially over the past few months to uh, open so many people's eyes up to the reality of what's happening around them and, and how we can solve that and get out of it. But even going a little bit more biographical, um, just tell us, where are you originally from and where do you live now? Is it the same place? Have you moved around? Yeah, yeah. So I was born in Baltimore uh, and uh, we moved to Myrtle Beach when I was like right before my sixth birthday. So I, I, I grew up in Myrtle Beach. I don't sound like it because my parents are both from uh, up north, but I was sort of I was born in, in Baltimore, but raised in the in the deep south. So I've lived in, in Myrtle Beach uh pretty much my whole life. Um, my wife and I also have a home in Toronto, um, but we, uh, we live in Myrtle Beach most of the time. And, um, and I started my business here and, uh, and I've been, you know, I grew it into a successful company and now I'm doing this full time. Uh, I was uh, a little bit more biographical inf information about me. I was, uh, my goal was to become a billionaire, grow the business into a multi-billion dollar business, retire in my, you know, late forties, early fifties. Uh, and then, uh, one day in 2014, the right side of my body went numb. And a few weeks later, they told me that I may possibly have MS. And yeah. it took about two years before they finally confirmed that I did have MS and, uh, kind of, realizing that and now since then my my ms has been stable my uh my i've actually gotten better slowly over time and on a very good health and treatment regimen uh, and i'm thankful for that uh, but being faced with that shock of the fact that uh you know we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow we don't know what's going to happen next week and do I want to spend the next 20 years just making even more money or do I want to appreciate the fact that I'm in a position financially now where I can focus full time on what my real passion is and build a legacy so that whether I'm here, if whether I'm only here for a few more minutes or I'm here for another 50 years uh, or longer, uh, what do I want to be doing with that time? And so I've been focusing that on my real passion and what the legacy I want to be. I want my legacy to be when I'm gone, that I spread the message, message of liberty to people, that I woke people up to the reality of why things are happening the way that they are and how we can move forward with common sense ideas to get us out of these problems by taking the power out of the hands of the politicians and their cronies and bureaucrats and putting it back in our hands where it always belonged. That is inspiring. I did not know this. And you know, kudos to you that you're able to transform that kind of condition into the success you've had and, and being a beacon to others. I mean, that's, uh, that means a lot. Most people, I mean, I, I confess I do not know a tremendous amount of people with MS, but I do know some, and, you know, obviously some folks are um, 
struggling. Some folks mm-hmm. are thriving. Some folks are, you know, fading. And it's, yeah, uh, yeah. it's, it's an incredible kind of thing to see that, um, you have did not let that derail you. And instead, it's almost like it fueled you into the greater glory. Early on, it derailed me. Early on, I was like, now what am I going to do? And I felt desperate. And over time, you know, you make peace with something. It's now your new normal. There's nothing you can do about it. And you adjust. Well, what do you want to do now? What really hit me, honestly, are even more than the, the disease. And some people get depressed when I say this. Uh, so I, I hope that doesn't happen for you. I, uh, uh, one of the doctors said the goal of treatment for MS is to slow the rate of progression down to where it's not much different than the average, uh, just, you know, the, 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 the actual just aging process. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Even if I'm in perfect health, we are all just slowly declining until eventually we're not here anymore. And it's something that we try to block out, right? Like we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to think about it. That's something that's going to happen in the future. But the reality is it's slowly happening to us, even in the best of health. And that really hit me like a ton of bricks where it was like, what am I doing with my life? Okay, great. I'm a multi-billionaire. Now what? Now I'm a multi-billionaire who may only have a few years left after that. I don't know. Or maybe I never even make it that far. Whatever amount of time I have here, now that I am in a position, you know, it's, it's what the guidance counselors used to ask kids, you know, if uh, money wasn't an object, what do you want to do? Well, I'm in a position where for the most part, money's not an object. So what do I want to do? I want to tell people about what's going on and how we can fix it, how we can get better. I want that to be my legacy. I want that to be what my, you know, my, my kids and my loved ones and our, my community remembers me for not, oh yeah, that guy was super rich. You know, like I, I want him to remember me for this is what, what he did, whether I do it as becoming the vice president, whether I do it as becoming, you know, just a, a major advocate for liberty, which I, at this point's already happened. Um, I want that to be my legacy. I want to build upon a legacy of liberty and of telling people that this is about setting people free. This is about freeing them from the, from the imposed uh, burdens and barriers that they've been put, had put on them by incredibly powerful, cynical people who intentionally wanted to keep them down for no other reason than for them to be as wealthy and powerful as possible. And that we don't have to live that way. We don't have to live in this centrally planned, arbitrarily defined and crony friendly system that was created by the Republicans and Democrats. We can live in a free system, a decentralized system where the power is given back to the people where it always belonged, where we as individuals and voluntarily in our communities can come up with the solutions that we want to face. We can decide what our schools look like. We can decide what our police departments and our first responses look like. We can decide what our communities look like without these incredibly powerful people who don't have our best interests at heart imposing their one-size-fits-all plans on all of us. That's what I want my legacy to be. Incredible. Again, inspiring. Um, And I got to ask, since... We are on a podcast right now. What what are your podcasts like and how many shows are in your network? And this is a fascinating detail of your biography. I've been very curious to ask about. So Muddy Waters Media has two shows. Uh, we did at one point have uh, three shows. And I, I should say we have three shows because we have a, a guy named Jason Lyon who he used to have a show every week, uh, but because of family obligations, he now does it about once a month. So we have three shows. Uh, uh, his show, Mr. America, The Bearded Truth, and uh, and my show, My Fellow Americans, and then a show that I co-host with my my co-host, Matt, and he's also the co-owner of, of Muddy Waters Media, uh, and that's the Muddy Waters of Freedom. Uh, and we have a, a, another program that's going to be coming out soon called The Hick Lossifer with uh, Tom Arnold. And, uh, and we've, we've got the some others that Tom are, Arnold? no, 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 it's a, it's a, uh, he's a, a libertarian activist okay. named Tom Arnold, uh, much better guy. 
Um, I shouldn't say that. I don't, I don't know the actor. I'm sure he's a good guy too, but uh, he's my favorite Tom Arnold, put it that way. And um, it's Muddy Waters Media was, was set up with the idea that we want to use entertainment to reach people. So we have the Muddy Waters of Freedom, which is kind of a topical program. It's sort of like the daily show for, 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 but from a libertarian standpoint, you know, we, we, we kind of make fun of the news. Um, but we've been able to bring in a lot of people with it. And it's been incredible. We have, uh, we, our, our reach has been measured in the millions and tens of millions some months. And, uh, so to be able, and, and, and what's great about it is we have advertised outside of libertarian circles. Like it's great when libertarians talk to libertarians about liberty and that whole iron sharpens iron type of thing. We want to reach people that the ideas of liberty are so foreign to them that they're sometimes hostile to them when they first hear it because it just so goes out side of anything they've heard before we want to reach the people who go what do you mean everyone's in control of their own that's not going to work we want to reach those people and so that's what we've done and we've been uh very very successful it's been incredibly rewarding and um you know it just it parlayed into what i'm doing now with uh with this run the last question i want to ask you is what is the future of the libertarian party well the goal is for the Libertarian Party to become the preeminent party uh, in politics and not just meaning now we win, but because if we win, but the cultural conversation hasn't changed, then we just become the new Republicans and Democrats, right? We get into office, we start making compromises left and right. Before you know it, we're just the new party. You know, the, the Republicans replaced the Whigs and became the new Whigs. So we, we don't want to become the next, the next Whigs or the next Democrats or whatever. <laughs> we want to change the cultural conversation. So as we are building ourselves up, winning the, whether we win the election in, in this cycle, which I believe we can, if we get on that debate stage, I believe we'll win it. But whether we win it or not, bringing that many more people into libertarianism, uh, change, helping to move and shift the needle of the cultural conversation away from, you know, basically two groups of people arguing over how much bigger government should be, how much more control it should have over our lives, how much more it should cost, how much less control and power we should have over our own lives and moving it towards the conversation about, wait a second, government is who imposed this upon us with their cronies we need the power back and, and shifting the conversation away from you know the, the what we call the cult of the omnipotent state and towards libertarian ideas what we believe to be common sense ideas and in doing so as a natural course of that if you affect the cultural conversation that affects the political conversation and that elects affects the you know electoral outcomes uh, so the goal eventually is for libertarianism to win not just in elections but in actual policy uh where we're now libertarians are running against republicans and democrats who are trying to copy our ideas and run against us on them because they recognize that we've shifted the conversation towards liberty and away from tyranny and that's the that's ultimately the goal is to set america free uh by using uh by dismantling the systems that were created by the republicans and democrats and changing the conversation towards freedom towards people recognizing in the same way that when we watch these movies like star wars we inherently recognize who the good guys are. We inherently recognize what the real goal is here to take the power away from the, from the, the, the powerful, cynical bad guys in it and, and give it to the people who are trying to fight for freedom to have that same uh, position when, when we look at our actual political, you know, the real politic in this country. Um, so that, that would be my goal for us. <laughs> That's true. That's a, and that is the way that, that we often do look at our politics, especially now in this, in these, you know, dead, literally deadly times with, yeah, the, yeah. with the pandemic and, and such. Well, 
Let me mention that Spike Cohen is the Libertarian Party's nominee for vice president. You can follow him on Twitter at RealSpikeCohen. And while you're at it, follow me at ArtSwift1. Spike Cohen, thank you for joining me in the Nexus. Art, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. And we will be right back. If you've been following the Nexus, you'll remember previous episodes dealing with my father contracting coronavirus. After an initial sickness, dad was definitely getting better. The problem was the virus depleted his energy so much that it was difficult for him to walk, to stand up, or to get out of bed himself. While he was doing physical therapy on a regular basis, he was greatly deconditioned, and this took a cumulative toll on his body. Also, COVID-19 damaged his lungs, and after a couple of months, his breathing issues became more and more severe. Using mere oxygen was not enough, and he eventually was rushed to the ICU, was in and out of a coma, and his lungs failed him. Coronavirus killed my father, and it should never have come to our shores. I guess we were lucky we had the right leadership in place when Ebola was raging in Africa in 2014 and never spread to the U.S. You just assume that your leaders are going to move heaven and earth to protect their citizens, from something like COVID-19. You would be wrong to assume that. President Trump has blood on his hands, and I hold him responsible, along with Governors Cuomo and Murphy, Mayor de Blasio, and many others for not doing enough to stop the spread of this insidious virus. Dad was healthy and sharp prior to going into the hospital March 26th. The fact the medical system not only couldn't make him well, but also couldn't save him, when he deteriorated is something I will not get over anytime soon. There is a lot to sort out from this ordeal and a lot of lessons I am just starting to learn. It is like the 2010s, a great decade for me ended in mid-March 2020 and this new horrific decade barreled into our house and blew it up. The future looks pretty grim. I wish I could be more inspiring, but at least I have great memories of dad. He was an Army veteran who served in combat, worked nearly 30 years for the Bell System, including AT&T, and was the CEO of his own telecommunications company. The amount of things I learned from him were incalculable, but in the last few weeks, I remember a lot of stray memories that have made me smile. Fostering my lifelong love of history with his great storytelling of World War II, the Korean War, and the Cuban Missile Crisis. He made those events come to vivid, ferocious life, teaching me how to ride a bicycle, teaching me baseball, including instilling in me a lifelong devotion to the New York Mets, introducing me to the beach and the mighty Atlantic Ocean, teaching me to respect the shoreline and the waves, taking me to the 200th anniversary reenactment of the revolutionary Battle of Fort Salonga on Long Island, history coming alive right in front of my eyes taking our family on many vacations, Disney World, California, Quebec, Las Vegas, Chicago, Seattle, St. Louis. Dad generously paid for my college education, and I loved when he would take me up to school and move me in each year. All the many car rides, family events, restaurants, taking me to McDonald's for breakfast as a little boy on weekends when that was considered a really big deal. 
the last decade was the best one we had. Dad and I spent so much one-on-one time together, and he became much more than a father. He became a friend and a trusted advisor. I could call him up at any time and talk to him about anything under the sun, and we often did that. I was so thrilled I could throw him an 80th birthday party last year, which family and his friends attended. I loved buying things for him and doing what I could to make his life better. I never thought things would end this way. During this crisis, Dad was never anything less than cheery and optimistic. His demise is a cautionary tale about how things can fall apart when we let our defenses down as a nation. If you think coronavirus is a hoax or no big deal or it's simply going to disappear, don't be surprised when your loved ones wind up dead. We live in very disturbing times. My dad did not deserve to go out this way. That's our show. I thank you for listening. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well. Please wear a mask.